Welcome to Trauma-Informed Caring, an Essential Conversations podcast brought to you by the Mid-America Addiction Technology Transfer Center, funded by SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. Although funded by SAMHSA, the content on this podcast does not necessarily reflect the views of SAMHSA. We have seen that in life and in work, well-being inspires well-doing. And so as is our practice, we begin this episode with a moment for grounding. We find it particularly important in this series as we are talking about the intersection of trauma-informed caring and the work of diversity, equity, inclusion, access, justice, and belonging. And these topics can be activating to our stress responses. So we invite you wherever you are, take a moment and join us for this grounding practice. I invite you to begin this resilience practice by first finding a comfortable seat, maybe swaying back and forth until you find it if you need to, and then allowing your body to relax and soften. And once you've found it, then gently placing your hand on your heart taking a moment to notice the warmth of your touch to your chest and the natural rhythm of your breath. Breathing into your heart center, any sense of safety, acceptance, trust, goodness, and ease you can gather. And if you're able and would like to, As you continue breathing in feelings of peace, contentment, and well-being, you may close your eyes or soften your gaze toward the ground or to the sky, whatever feels comfortable and safe for you. And once breathing those qualities into your heart center is steady, I invite you to imagine you're encircled by people who love you. Seeing yourself in your mind's eye at the center point of a circle made up of the most loving beings you've ever known. And that could mean the cared for ones in your life or beings that you are inspired by, even though you've never met them. These beings may exist now. They may exist historically or they may even exist in fantasy. And I invite you to receive the love of those that love you, to take this moment and experience yourself as the recipient of compassion, care, energy, and regard of all of those beings in the circle that surrounds you are providing to you. Notice what it feels like to be connected with them in this way. And as you take that in, I'd invite you to silently repeat whatever phrases are expressive of that which you wish most for yourself, not just for today, but in an enduring way. Big, expansive, open words, maybe something like, may I be safe? May I be well. May I live with ease of heart. And I'd also invite you to notice how you feel when you receive love as you remain in the center of this circle. An endless range of emotions may arise, whether that is gratitude or awe or tenderness. Maybe there's even discomfort or you would rather hide away and have all of these beings sending loving kindness to one another and forget all about you. Whatever is happening for you, simply notice it, allow it to wash over you and take any judgment away with it. Your touchstone is the mantras that fit for you. May I be peaceful. May I be happy. May I be healthy whatever phrases you've chosen. And now I'd invite you to open yourself up to create space for receiving love, envisioning your skin as porous so you may soak in this abundance of warm, loving energy 
And there is nothing special that you need to do to be worthy of this acknowledgement or care. It is simply by virtue of you existing that makes you deserving. Take a moment to welcome that tenderness into your heart, holding that compassion and anything else that you're noticing is present for you in the here and now. And at this point, I'd invite you to send loving kindness and care and compassion that you feel coming toward you back to the being that make up your circle, feeling it flowing outward to the circle and then ultimately further outward toward all beings everywhere. There is mutuality as you receive loving kindness. You also continue to transform this energy into giving. And know that you may connect to this limitless and infinite source of love and support anytime you wish. For now, though, I'd invite you to bring your attention back to your breath, taking one more deep, slow inhale. And on the exhale, removing your hand from your heart, gently opening your eyes if you had them closed, and returning your attention to the space that you're in maybe giving your fingers and toes a good wiggle and finally releasing this practice. Wow. Thank you, Whitney. That was wonderful. I'm Roxanne Pendleton. And I'm Andrea Dalton. And this is Trauma-Informed Caring. All right. So we are together again talking about trauma-informed caring and how that intersects with diversity, equity, inclusion, access, belonging justice, all of those really important concepts that are being talked about more and more, fortunately, I think, in our society. Uh, We're recognizing the importance of those. And I think also the importance of how they do intersect with trauma-informed care. I think that's part of the conversation we've been really interested in having. And so we're excited today to have our guests from uh, the Campaign for Trauma-Informed Policy and Practice, who have been doing this work also in a slightly different way and in a different part of the country than we are. Our listeners might remember that uh, Roxanne and I are in the Kansas City area. So we'll get to our guests in just a second. But before we do that, I do want to remind you all that the why for our podcast has been exploring varied perspectives. And as we do that, we nurture knowledge and inspire courage for practical, transformative action. So with that, I'm going to first ask Whitney if if she'll introduce herself. You heard her give our really amazing grounding resilience practice as we got started today. So Whitney, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you are, what you do in the world, that sort of thing. You bet. Hi, folks. I'm Whitney Maris. I am here in lovely Alexandria, Virginia, right outside of Washington, D.C., and I am CTIP's Director of Trauma-Informed Practice and System Transformation, which means that I have the privilege to spend a good chunk of my time supporting our team to integrate and operationalize the principles of a trauma-informed, resilience-building, and healing-centered approach in our work. And uh, that is both in terms of our internal processes, as well as our general operations as an organization. And just so glad to be with you all today. Fantastic. I think every organization (laughs) needs a Whitney. Say your title again. Say your title again. (laughs) Director of Trauma-Informed Practice and System Transformation. Director of Trauma-Informed Practice and System Transformation. Yes, every organization needs that. Thanks for being here. All right. And then our other guest today is Jesse. You'll just tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I'm Jesse Kohler. Very humbled to be with all of you and my wonderful colleague, Whitney. Um, I have the privilege of getting to serve as the executive director of the Campaign for Trauma-Informed Policy and Practice. When we were an unfunded organization, that looked like doing a little bit of everything. And as we build a team, (laughs) it looks a lot more like fundraising, back end, bookkeeping, and really getting to see the wonderful work of the team, Whitney, Jen, Laura, our board, our wonderful advocates and volunteers really carry the work forward. And so I see a big part of my role is holding and creating space for folks like Whitney to do the incredible work um, that she does. That just gave me chills. Everyone needs a Jesse too. Like what if your executive director saw their main role as holding and creating space for you to succeed in doing what you need to do? 
Wow. Y'all, we are in for a treat you know, today. I, d- I do just want to say uh, our director, I think, also takes that approach. Absolutely. And that is what gives us, I think, the ability to utilize our, our creativity. And she does. Even do things like this podcast. And so I appreciate that. As a leader, that's just a, a tremendous gift, I think, for the people that work alongside you. It so. really is. All right. Well, I would love to kind of kick off our dialogue today with the question, how do you see um, trauma-informed caring, which is certainly a powerful movement, intersecting with the movement that is diversity, equity, inclusion, um, belonging, justice, and access? How do you see those two things intersecting either in your work Or you can tell us a story about uh, life outside of work, right? Because we are who we are, wherever we are. And this is applicable everywhere. So any thoughts about that? Well, you know, we know that our systems and institutions are at once in trauma and inflicting trauma, Mm -hmm. right? And those harms are rooted in injustice and inequity, which is continuing to impact experiences and outcomes as well as the way that folks engage with self, other, and the world around them, and in ways which demand for us to be really intentional about how the CTIP team ourselves think about these concepts, and also how we support others in really paying attention to the interconnectedness of the ABDEIJ framework and the core principles of a trauma-informed approach in their advocacy work. Um, That's what brought us all together in CTIP in the first place, right? And so one thing I think that's been really important to us is to do our work in a way that allows for meaningful participation just across the continuum of human ability, identity, and experience. Because we know trauma is more normative than not, right? Especially after the last several years, um, maybe even perhaps universal in some sense of the word. And so really making space for the richness and multidimensionality and full humanity of each person who truly wants to be a part of our work to move this uh, movement forward and to honor the many ways of thinking, being, and doing that are represented among people with lived experience is really something we continually work um, at integrating more and more. And I'd say, unfortunately, I think we've experienced and heard through our community about some gatekeeping in this broader movement. You know, we hear from folks that, you know, this movement isn't for me because it's too academic or this doesn't seem targeted to me because it's I see big organizations and and academic institutions driving the bulk of the work. And I don't necessarily do anything related to this for a living, yet I am living these experiences with each day, right? And so we want to be different in that regard. We want to keep what are essentially our training materials and advocacy resources free in the spirit of equity and accessibility. We want to have ongoing internal process conversations, even when there are ouch moments, because without that radical honesty and the ability to really get curious about our internal reactions, our individual or collective bias could get in the way of our broader progress and operations as an organization. And so we really want to create spaces where people living in all kinds of bodies with all kinds of stories and perspectives can really authentically show up and engage with the work meaningfully, feeling like they found their place in the movement with us, you know, thinking of trauma-informed values. That's that true, deep felt sense of trust and collaboration and mutuality that just enables a different type of participation than being included superficially and then totally disregarded or silenced or tapped for wisdom to create a toolkit or a shiny new report and then never engaged with again. So we think they're inextricable, these frameworks. Yeah, that's fantastic. Some of the things I was thinking about as you were talking is, you know, I I worked, I have worked basically my entire career in a mental health setting. And there has often been a response when I talk about trauma-informed care that like, oh, well, that's a thing for mental health workers. Like, I think you even said, like, that's not for me. Like, you know, that perspective that 
it, it's only for the worst thing or it's only for somebody else. And we love to talk all the time about how trauma-informed care could change the world if we were all doing it. Like that could be the method toward world peace or uh, or at least maybe better relationships with each other, right? Yeah. Like we read somewhere, I don't remember who to credit to. So thank you person who came up with this, but it's that it's not trauma-informed care. It's really just human-informed care. Right. Like if you're a person, <laughs> yeah. if you have a nervous system, right, it's human-informed care. It, and I remember when I first came to the field, having spent decades working in uh, mainly in local communities as a, as a leader, a faith leader, uh, a pastor, a chaplain, and there were certainly many experiences of trauma, both in terms of what I responded to and what I experienced. I didn't have any of these frameworks. I didn't have any of the words. I didn't even know what secondary trauma was. I didn't know what vicarious trauma was. I didn't know what really compassion fatigue was, Um, but I saw it. I felt it. And I also noticed that there was a way, if you, if you interacted with people a certain way, it helped the whole situation be better And it was really interacting with them from a perspective of being able to add calm and help your nervous system and other nervous systems. I didn't know this word (laughs) deescalate. You know, I didn't realize we were all activated in our stress response, but I knew that there was a certain way that you treated people with compassion and kindness and respect that um, enhanced relationships and especially in a crisis, right? And I remember when I came home from work uh, early on and had been learning about trauma-informed care and the neurobiology of stress and all of these things. And I came home to talk to my husband who had been a hospice chaplain for uh, 20 years. And I was very excited. And he just looked at me with this very confused look on his face. And he said, isn't that just the way we should treat people? Like he didn't even understand why it was a big deal. You know, and I said, well, it's a big deal because there's science behind it. Now we know why we should treat people that way. But it really is, if you think about it, just the way to treat one another, ideally, you know, and, and maybe informed. it is the way we, we should, but it's not the way we, not the way we do. To- no, it is certainly not our default. Yeah. So it takes yeah. like, it takes intentionality. For sure. All the time, uh, if we're going to do that consistently. Yeah. Well, he used that word should, I think, on purpose. Isn't that the way we should? Or the way we ought to? <laughs> With air quotes around right. it. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, hey, so Jesse, um, to you, I want to give you an option to uh, answer that. Where do you see these things intersecting in the work that you're doing and or in life? Everywhere. I mean, I think that when you start to understand this, you just can't help but see it all over. Um, (laughs) I I won't try to make up for what Whitney shared. I will say that Whitney wrote an excellent blog post about integrating accessibility, belonging, diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice into the trauma-informed movement that's on our Yeah, we use it all the time. Yeah, we do. And we should link to it in uh, the notes if we can. It is fantastic. It is really good. It really is. Um, You know, my background's in community work as well. I worked at a Philadelphia public high school. My first job out of college um, didn't have this language. But again, I think that it was sort of inherent to who I am as a person. And then I got a master's in educational leadership because I wanted to transform the education system. And during that master's program, I got an internship with the Office of Attorney General in Pennsylvania to create a trauma-informed care network throughout the state. And that was when I was introduced to trauma-informed care. And for me, it was providing language to explain a lot about my own experiences, Mm -hmm. a lot about the experiences that I saw in the world, and then understand that we didn't just need to transform the education system. We could transform every system with this underlying paradigm and sort of how that foundation has continued to allow for transformation and scaffolding and layering of learning has been so, so powerful. And again, I think that as you do this work more and more, you just see how there is limited accessibility. A a ton of people in our world don't feel like they belong. They don't feel seen or heard or valued. There is limited diversity, equity, and inclusion, and we are working toward creating systems that promote justice. Mm -hmm. And that's really about creating conditions of empowerment at all levels of the social, ecological, logical model 
And I think that that's what we're trying to do with trauma-informed care, healing-centered engagement, whatever language people put to these principles and values, that's really what drives the work. Yeah, definitely. So that makes me wonder then, what are the biggest challenges you face in the work that you all are doing through CTIP in particular in looking at these kind of bigger system transformations? What comes up? Where are the barriers? We know that they're there because obviously we're not all just automatically transforming into trauma-informed care, you know, ways of being, policies, practices, whatever it might be. But what comes up maybe most frequently or what are the ones that, I don't know, maybe keep you up at night or uh, that you think about a lot or that you start thinking about and then you're like, no, I can't go there right now because that's just going to be. That's going to derail my energy level, be able to continue to keep doing the work. Yeah. I think Whitney and I both stay up late at night or are awoken by sudden thoughts frequently because it's just so much. Um, Whitney, do you want to take a shot at it first or? Sure. Well, you know, I I think that one of the greatest greatest barriers that we see just in this work in general is really speaking to that belonging piece because mm-hmm. that is so essential, right? There's this aspect when we think of belonging, and you know, I, I think what's really important to be radically honest um, about the fact that an environment can make noble and really active, thoughtful, intentional efforts to celebrate and reflect the strength of diversity. And it can sort of check all those boxes to theoretically appear inclusive while being wrong about assuming that belonging is actually therefore felt. And, you know, the research on belonging tells us what it actually takes, not just to make efforts to include, but to truly create the context and conditions in which full participation and safety and trust Mm -hmm. and connection can actually take place. And it's much more complicated than simply uh, having uh, boxes to check. So we really need to pay attention to how the quest for belonging differs across identity-based factors in a national movement with so many different communities, so many different people coming to this work, wanting to see a role and also having experiences of trauma and re-traumatization themselves. You know, the other day we sort of retooled our community action network calls. And it was specifically because we sort of had people who were positioned as experts in a certain field or approach up there, sort of almost like a sage on a stage um, Mm -hmm. approach. And while there's absolutely a time and a place for that, where it's really helpful and inspiring to see this great work being done, the one thing we noticed is that folks were really hungering for engagement with few opportunities to really feel like they can participate in a meaningful, engaged way. Mm-hmm. And so recently, the first call of this year, just last week, it was the first time that we really took a different approach where we got a sense of what folks think advocacy success looks like, what might be barriers to entry, to feeling that sense of belonging, what they're already doing in their own worlds to move toward that success, really keeping things solution-focused, to invite uh, a strength-based lens rather than that deficit-based lens that we know people have heard in their own spaces before. And that might chill participation because of that potential for re-traumatization. So we see it as our role to really operationalize these values, both of trauma-informed approaches and the DEI um, AJB framework to ensure that we're creating a place where people can come to actually be in conversation and share their successes and share what they need to see happen to take their next steps. And what we found is that making that small shift from, you know, kind of expert stance to you are the expert of you stance, it really was profound, uh, the meaningful discussion that took place. And we're also really trying to, to put together some listening and learning sessions among group of ad- groups of advocates in our network to really continue to not just take guesses at what's needed based upon where we stand. Because I I think that's where our pitfall was before, where we struggled to to get that belonging piece, even if we had mechanisms in place that we thought were sufficient, um, just to get those voices of lived experience more integrated into our work. So that's one of the things that I think we've done recently, Jesse. What are you thinking about? 
Yeah, I mean, no, it's absolutely, you know, a big step that we're taking. And I think that if you take what we're doing internally and trying to transform, if we look even more broadly at how our systems function, there aren't really those opportunities in the world. And and what we're trying to do is nurture a paradigm shift for how not just like individual policies are written. There are some great policies that we definitely champion, but even the fundamental way in which our systems operate and the way that people experience and are integrated into systems is so critical. And, you know, to create that sense of belonging, to create a more real democracy where people are able to to share the ways that systems have impacted them and share the way that they think that they could be transformed at a grassroots state, national, global level. And then we fundamentally believe it's a thought of Sandy Bloom that democracy is an antidote to trauma, that creating living systems and allowing for them to continue to evolve as we learn more and integrate voice and belonging is so critical. And so how we nurture that paradigm shift so far away from how <laughs> systems currently operate mm-hmm. is is a big you know thing that we think about. Roxanne, I, um, okay, yeah, I I have so many like so many thoughts. Let me try to narrow them down. So first of all, wow, yes, and absolutely, I can see how democracy, true healthy democracy, would absolutely be the antidote to trauma. And I'm simultaneously feeling all this churning in my gut about. What are you asking people to do? Because here's the thing. Experts are used to being experts and there's a different skill set between I'm going to come in and present to you on a topic I have some expertise regarding versus I'm going to come in and facilitate a living, breathing, Mm -hmm. interactive experience where I let go of knowing what's going to come next. Scary. And I trust scary that all the people in this uh, engagement are going to come in a way that doesn't harm us worse because sometimes that happens and that we're going to together. Oh, here's another scary thing. Like we're all going to share responsibility for what we create versus it's that person's job (laughs) to deliver the training right now. We're all going to share responsibility for um, having expertise and shaping culture and whatever the initiative is. And that I, that is ideal and wonderful. And you've got some people who are pretty comfortable just listening to the expert and then tell me what I need to do. And you also have other people who just aren't quite ready, you know, maybe because of their trauma, maybe it's organizational sure. trauma. So my question to you is, um, yes, wow, let's do it. Let's all do it. How? Like, what are some practical? How? That's that's probably the most common question I ask in my life. My my kids can even imitate yeah, the way do I do, do it. it. How? How? So, can you give us like what what are some learnings as you're transforming the expert stance to you are the expert of you stance? What are some learnings you can share with our listeners um, and me? I'm just intrigued. Like, <laughs> tell me. Before, what are you doing? <laughs> before Whitney or Jesse answers, I, I do want to pop in and say one of our, well, I'll own it for myself. One of my favorite books is Emergent Strategy. Oh, yes. Andrew that's on my mind. <laughs> and yeah, as we're having this that last chapter, like, I can't our section. help but think about all that last of the section. things I've learned from Adrienne Marie Brown over the last few years uh, in diving into her work and like the other people that are connected with emergent strategy work too. And there's just so much good stuff there. And that is some of the how I think is, is really looking at those systems approaches. And uh, I think when we do that, there is, or there can be, if we're doing it maybe in a, in a kind and thoughtful way, like not like a dictatorship kind of systems change, but like the emergent strategy way of changing. It's going to be messy though. It's going to be messy. It is going to be messy, but it does honor the experience of all of the people who are part of that system and allows for contribution and collaboration and uh, voices to be heard that maybe aren't always recognized by the dominant folks in the room. Um, so anyway, I, you know, never want to miss an opportunity to put plugs in for my favorite books, like (laughs) emergent strategy. So, (laughs) so give us your wisdom, please. How are you, 
what are some things you're doing or that you've learned that help you achieve this? Yeah. This change. You're, you're so right. It's a very vulnerable process, right? Yeah. To sort of seed control and trust that whatever happens is what's supposed to happen. And I, I think that, you know, we have to also really understand that being trauma-informed or embodying trauma-informed values and principles, we can't be perfect. There is no perfect. Right. We can't expect ourselves to be perfect. What we can do is model the model of operationalizing these values, take accountability when we make mistakes and learn from them, take them as information moving forward. And I think one of the things that really helped us anchor in that framework, um, and by the way, we had four facilitators in breakout rooms I happen to be a social worker and a trauma therapist, and I'm also trained in restorative restorative justice work. I'm a circle keeper. So these other three folks did this completely courageously with none of that experience and all succeeded, but it was because of the environment we created before we split off into those smaller groups. So we co-construct a set of community agreements when we, when we create discussion spaces in our meetings um, to which each participant is expected to hold themselves accountable in order to really support an environment in which everyone feels as if they have whatever they personally need in place to meaningfully participate. Mm -hmm. And this is really about helping folks know what to expect and what is expected of them, right? That trust and transparency when we're thinking about those values. And that counteracts the white body supremacy culture too, that so often leads to less fruitful discussions because there isn't that sense of belonging and inclusion. And that's important, right? There can be, again, inclusion for inclusion's sake without it really supporting a person to fully show up and engage as themselves, which really emphasizes, again, just how important the principles of these frames um, are for this work. And and so with these community agreements, um, people call each other in rather than calling each other out. Everyone is free to pass, participate in whatever way fits for them. Um, In the call in versus call out, I like to say throwing sunshine rather than shade, right? Which helps us get away from that idea of needing, again, to be perfect, which is a part of white supremacy culture um, and being trauma-informed. And these agreements really allow us to engage with curiosity and allow us to be humans and works of progress while absolutely trusting that we'll support each other in preserving a space for these important, courageous conversations to continue to take place. And that's key because, let's face it, so many of us come to this work with trauma histories of our own, Mm -hmm. right? And so even if the main topic is, I don't know, a a conversation about some bill in a state we don't live in, the work is personal and it's often just inextricable from dimensions of our identities and stuff can and does unexpectedly come up. And so we really do our best to integrate the principles of a trauma-informed approach as well as the DEIAJV frame um, in any community conversations we have. And that was our first one, and it was pretty successful. Um, Jesse, any any thoughts on what that experience was like for you as somebody who got kind of thrown into that role? As not a social worker? I mean, it was was excellent. You know, there's always learning. I I think that, you know, what I'm sort of thinking about is that there is definitely a time and place and that the webinars and having folks really share a place of expertise is valuable and necessary. But what we've heard from our network is that that is nearly 100% of the opportunities that exist. Mm -hmm. And that is not inequitable. Um, Like that's just wrong, right? There need to be opportunities for engagement and for like everyone to be able to share their expertise and lived experiences and, and how important creating those spaces are. And, you know, I think that for me, that this has been a journey. I mean, trying to hold on to power and I got put, uh, the again, the privilege of being able to be the executive director when I was 26 of CTIP and holding on to power, that real want to be in a position of power, that can be a trauma response, like you said. And I think that we need to be compassionate and understand that this is difficult for a lot of people to be able to give that up. But it's been a continuous process of learning and to use that position to then open up and give power instead of hoard it. And then how much more powerful I've found that that, forget about me for a second, but CTIP as an organization continues to build its position in the national movement, hopefully someday global movement, as we share power instead of just try to keep it all to ourselves. 
Yeah. Ugh. That's fantastic. Not hopefully someday, Jesse. Right. The global yeah. movement that is that is coming, that is here. Yes. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Agreed. A lot of what you've been talking about makes me think of how we've been talking more and more about just how important it is before you ever try to change your system, before you ever try to implement trauma-informed practices in your organization, you have to be trauma-informed with yourself. And you have to be applying those principles inwardly. And really, if we would all do that, like we'd probably just naturally fall into those practices with each other. Uh, Though, again, humans, not always so great about change and you know, doing the right thing for everyone else. Like we are selfish, like that. That's how we stay alive. We're I selfish hope. and I we're incredibly it. generous. We're both. We're I know both. we can be, and we can hold that, All of hold those that things. tension too. I think of yeah. being both self, selfish and incredibly generous. Yeah. Um, and like, how do we continue to navigate those kinds of situations where that tension exists in a way that is trauma? informed like that is how we start to change the systems and the organizations and that sort of thing go ahead Roxanne well so in the realm of being both and both trauma-informed and a work in progress (laughs) process I would love to hear the ways that bias shows up in this transformative work you do if you're willing to share even your own bias? Like we're talking about knowing ourselves and being trauma-informed with ourselves, if you're willing to talk about that, or you can just talk about bias in general. I'd love to hear about how that awareness of bias shows up and what do you do to counteract it? Like what can we all do? We know it's there. What what can we do to counteract it? I'll just say quickly that on the being trauma-informed place, Mm -hmm. I have come to the understanding that trauma-informed care is like you never actually are trauma-informed right, right? it's a commitment to an ongoing process of it's learning a and journey growth and humility exactly. yeah it's, it's so, a way of being it's not a thing you attain right and on the bias you know conversation i mean i am a white cisgendered straight you know male in this society i have um, a tremendous amount of unconscious bias that I try to be as aware of as possible. And even my awareness of that bias is probably biased by my (laughs) position in the world. And so I think that going back to the prior conversation, you know, educate, you know, yourself and be Mm -hmm. as open to different perspectives as possible. But I think that the going back to like the last question that we were talking about, rather than me making every decision, opening up space for people with different positionalities. That's the only way that I can possibly be unbiased because I am a very flawed human as we are as humans, going back to the conversations about how we are just as human beings. And so bringing in diversity and having a wonderful team around you to help you know, bring in different experiences and sort of level out where my biases come in and where others' biases comes in. I mean, that's a huge part of the process that goes back into the conversation about inclusion, belonging, holding space for those conversations. But Whitney, as usual, you're you're much more eloquent than I am. So I'm excited to hear what you have to say. I thought what you said was really profound, actually. You know, I I think that you make beautiful points. And the first thing for me, I I think is just to make sure I'm engaging with the people who are different than I am that I know, or that I don't know yet. Right. Which can be tough because it feels safer sometimes in conversation with my own community members who already seem to get it. I know we're politically aligned. We share core values. We know that about each other. And yet I recognize that being insular and sort of isolated is not exactly how change happens, right? So hearing from other humans who have different perspectives and experiences really helps me resist thinking of colonized knowledge and biases and practices that I absorbed simply by virtue of being nested in the environments I've been in while embodying the identity factors that I do in my life. 
And I think that's really comes down to self-awareness. Like you mentioned earlier, you have to self-regulate to co-regulate, right? I need to create space for acceptance. Sometimes that means I have to really do some breathing exercises when I encounter some challenging difference, which we do because we work with bipartisan lines. We work with both political parties. We work with people across the country with different needs and priorities and values and experiences, And so I really strive to be intentional about speaking from the I, but thinking and thinking from the we, right? So Mm -hmm. owning my experience, taking care to really claim anything that's my opinion rather than making generalizations or presenting again as expert in any of the work I do. And I think because trauma is so normative, there are a lot of different perspectives and ways of thinking and being and doing even underneath this umbrella that we all came together for. Thank you both. And that is a brilliant lead into my next question. You said you have to work with people on both sides of issues. You have to work with a lot of people who might be very different from you and have your personal set of values and your personal morals. And I'm just wondering if you have been aware of any experiences of moral dissonance or moral distress or even moral injury in the work, which is uh, when you hear about or see or you yourself do or fail to do something that goes against your deep, deep moral values, um, you can have a kind of injury from that. And I wonder if you've experienced that in the work and if you can share how you navigate that kind of pain. It's really hard and sometimes (laughs) painful to see the discrepancy between the world as it is and the world that we'd like to see it or how we have seen it up until that point. And ouch, right? And and I've worked in a lot of different settings as a social worker and in past lives doing other work too. This is everywhere. And there's no doubt that sometimes it's been painful to recognize that in a way you know, the, the in the therapy context, the transformative action that I've supported others in taking for themselves may have only equipped them to better cope with the pain and harm and struggle mm-hmm. that they will continue to be subjected to in this world. And that is yeah. hard to sit with. Yeah. I want to dismantle the systems that have made them vulnerable in the first place, right? And that's part of why I think it's so important to me to also be working at this structural and systemic level as I see CTIP's role is really working toward removing the barriers that thwart all people from thriving and flourishing and experiencing optimal health and well-being. And also, I think, you know, as I'm saying that, having said that, in some areas, I've been able to transform those moments of what felt like maybe moral distress or moral injury into moral courage Mm. to really speak truth to power and to advocate alongside and when needed on behalf of others in ways that did get results despite it potentially putting me at risk. And so, you know, I think what helped me do that was maybe a healthy dose of righteous anger, um, a sense <laughs> a, a penchant for making good trouble um, and a radical hope that we individually and collectively just have this sense of agency to change things for the greater good and that fighting for equity and justice and healing is never in vain. Um, and I also believe that what we notice and focus on grows bigger and that we're in charge of what we focus on, right? So when I do have those moments that signal that progress just isn't possible, but we're already on our way toward um, my vision to a preferred future in some ways, I really try to take pause to be grateful and acknowledge the work that we did to get there and really make meaning of that. Um, even the more challenging experiences where I may not have been, you know, how I would have defined successful out of the gate, but it also equips me with wisdom and tools to be more successful down the line and increases my fight. Right. Um, so I think it's noticing the good, the solutions, the victories, the compassion, the connections, the progress mm-hmm. um, that really helped me create space to move away from the trauma responses of this work. I think it is Adrian Marie Brown that says there is no failure. There's only learning. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Bingo. Yeah. Thank you. Do you want to speak to that, Jesse? Sometimes I'm like, why even try to? I know it seems like totally quotable. Go to like the right. I mean, Whitney's incredible. Um, (laughs) You know, I'll just share my own personal experiences too that come to mind, and then it fits into what Whitney said. I think Mm -hmm. so. When I was in college, granted, 
all growing up, I wanted to be a professional baseball player. That didn't happen. But <laughs> other than that, I, I come from a family of attorneys and I wanted to be a lawyer. I was a pre-law guy. And at the end of my sophomore year of college, I got arrested for something that I didn't do and saw a very different mm. avenue and lens of the justice system. And granted, the silver lining to that was that 25 hours of court-mandated community service turned into like a 1,000 hours, which turned into me being a public health advocate at Oberlin Community Services, which is why I got into the nonprofit space in the first place. Wow. But that moral injury of like this system that I thought I wanted to be a part of, that I thought I understood, and seeing how justice was not the central like motivation of what was called the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. um, that was not the intent for me or others that I met along my journey, which was a huge piece that again, post-traumatic growth, post-traumatic wisdom, which keeps me going and driving in this work and, and led to different life experiences. And then similar to what Whitney shared about in her counseling work, I was the director of development after my master's program at a community center in Philadelphia. And we provided emergency services, food cupboard, utility service, holiday assistance. We had child care and workforce development, a true continuum of care. But through that and thinking that I was doing good and we were doing a lot of good. But what I saw was that we were really trying to be the glue for all the cracks in society that systems just weren't oriented to try to fix. And so many people, families and were just falling through and there weren't adequate protections. And I'll say that that moral injury of wanting to do this work because I wanted to do good in the world led to my advocacy because all of that that I saw in community drove my work for CTIP as a board member, as a volunteer, as an advocate growing to now being in this executive director position. And you know, being able to take what I saw and then advocate at a systems level while still providing that necessary direct service. So not getting out of people need food, people need childcare without cost being a barrier, teens need a place to go, but then saying, how can we transform systems? So that way, fewer people actually need this in the future. Yeah. And we can do other work that continues to move along, meeting the deeper needs yeah. of the community and people that we had was a huge part of, um, you know, my own lived experiences that, again, I'm not going to try to extrapolate better than Whitney did, but I think just fits into the model of what you were saying, Whitney, about, you know, why that transformation is so important. Thank you so much. In each of you, I see something that I don't know if we even have time to um, sort through with the remainder of our podcast. But the question that is occurring to me is you, you had these really hard experiences and you, you transform those into the fire that drives you, right? To change the world. And I love that. And I wonder how we could bottle that and, and get it to the people who have these terrible hard experiences and get frozen. They don't turn it into that fire to transform. They, they feel so beaten down. I'm just wondering what the difference is, you know, like what's the difference between the people who take that and churn it into the fire to change the world and the people who have that experience. And it's just the most devastating experience of their lives and they don't get past it. And I wonder if we could figure that out and then move into those communities <laughs> where they are stuck and it, they're seeing it as just devastation and somehow turn it into the fire to change the world. Like what could happen? Well, if, if you may be so bold to say, do you know I, what it is? Well, I don't, I don't think I know what it is, but I, I have an idea. Okay. Could be interesting to discuss. <laughs> But I think a lot of it does have to do with where we started this conversation today. It has a lot to do with privilege yeah. and it has a lot to do with what kind of resources we have at our disposal to be able to feel that courage to step to in. Believe to, that to, can to believe even that we can even do it. That and we have a right to speak. That, yeah. And I, and I don't think that everyone always has the resources they need to be able to do that. Um, in fact, individuals don't always at any point in their life always have the resources they need to do that. Um, and so I think that that probably plays a role in it. Well, it's just that, that question of like, that. 
who do you think you are that you could change the world? What makes you think you can change the world? And some of us are like, well, of course I can change the world. I was born to change the world. That's why I'm here. But other people, you know what I'm saying? Like, how do you get that? Well, like what messages were you told as a that child? Can question authority. Yeah. Both explicitly and implicitly. Right. What did society tell you that you could and couldn't do? Um, yeah. You know, I think that we look at financial resources. Our society is very biased toward economic capital. Oh, yeah. um, and I mean that in many, many dimensions. It just is, yeah. I think that the other piece is that I have had incredible relationships and supports mm-hmm. and that relational buffer to trauma. Dr. Bruce Perry talks, yeah. I think, as eloquently as anybody about the importance of healthy relationships as the greatest buffer that humans have to trauma. And our systems do not invest adequately in capacity for relationships and healthy relationships to be built, right? There is so much transactional relationship instead of, or transactional capital instead of relational capital that we invest in. And I think that that is part of that system's transformation more deeply that we're working toward. I will say that we may need... uh, a hundred podcast episodes to unpack. All oh of this. yeah, but totally. The idea of investing in multiple dimensions of capital is so important. And I'll say mm-hmm. that I, I was fortunate to have a wonderful family that supported me through many trying moments and many wonderful friends like Whitney who have taught me so much and been there to support me over the years. And one of the most one of the many lessons that Whitney's taught me is that, you know, I was big into saying we need to empower people. And Whitney was like, we can't empower people. What we need to do is create conditions for empowerment mm-hmm. to exist. And we don't do that right. for enough people. And so I think mm-hmm. that, and Whitney, I'll pass this to you because like, I know that you'll have a lot more thoughts, but our society sort of is a pull yourself up from the bootstrap sort of Yep you know, society Myth. and, you know, one of the great things that I hear is like, how can you do that if you don't even have boots, right. which exactly. is a big question that we need to, you know, sort of grapple with, but how we so often the onus is placed on the individual. If a traumatic mm-hmm. experience puts you down, that is an individual problem. And we don't see how systemically we are not creating conditions for people to reach their full potential. And I think that that is, uh, I, I went off on like a, a tangent there. So I, I sort a of- A lovely tangent, that's great. Like, I think that we need to focus on creating conditions and stop placing the onus on the individual and instead take systemic ownership for how we are perpetuating outcomes that currently, you know, there are so many negative outcomes and how mm-hmm. can we create systems that really drive positive outcomes and I don't know if you have anything. I don't know why Jesse keeps thinking he's not eloquent when he's. Thinking I, I know. I, like, like everything he right. said has been. <laughs> y'all, you're both. Whitney, it's, it's wow. It's just different, as my dad would say. <laughs> I don't even think I have anything to add. I think you you said it really beautifully. I just think that you're absolutely spot on. Realistic sense of hope, not toxic mm-hmm. positivity. Um, Just this realistic sense of hope, really meeting folks where they're at. And I agree with Jesse too. I think it's connection and community. I think that idea of Ubuntu, right? That a person Mm -hmm. is a person through other persons, right? Mm -hmm. That all healing and growth and good stuff in life happens in relationship and in community, And our systems are designed to deter that, right? These are working the way they're supposed to work to keep the status quo in place. And so that's another place where those values all intersect with one another. Um, And we think about collaboration and mutuality and equity and justice. And I I just see the Venn diagram as a circle to me in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think you captured it beautifully. We have had yet another fantastic discussion today and many, many points to ponder. We are going to pull out three takeaways. The first is working through that barrier of of assuming that belonging is felt just because your goals are lofty and your mission is trauma-informed. You cannot assume that people simply feel like they belong. We have to work to create that. And we need to move from um, 100% sage on a stage um, kind of expert stance reducing that and sharing some time where you are the expert of you stance. And the way you do that is to really co-construct 
community agreements in discussion spaces where we all can meaningfully participate, you know, actually create time where it's not a lecture, but rather it's a facilitated time of sharing uh, personal expertise and wisdom. And I loved the metaphor of uh, calling people in rather than calling them out. When you have something that's uncomfortable, how can we throw sunshine instead of throw shade? We can engage with curiosity and kindness and um, understanding of that, yes, there's a time for expertise sharing. And right now we need to cultivate that sense of belonging by inviting all the voices to speak from their shared wisdom and, and their lives. We need to make time and space for that kind of sharing. And then our second takeaway, which we, we had some trouble figuring out what these takeaways were going to be today. So there's so many good ones. There's so many good ones. But uh, the second one we would like to just highlight the idea of cultivating post-traumatic growth and what that can look like in the face of trauma, in the face of moral injury, and how how do we think about creating conditions for others to be able to step into spaces where they do feel empowered, where they do feel like they have a voice, and also just paying attention to the impact of those things on ourselves uh, as we're doing that work. What do we need to do to be well anyway in the face of really difficult circumstances and observations? Yeah, and I really loved what Whitney said about what we focus on grows bigger and we are in charge of what we focus on. And so making those hard experiences have empowering meanings that then fuel our fight, you know, live to fight the next day, live to fight another day. Um, And so finally, then our third takeaway is about relationships relationships, relationships. They are the buffer to trauma. And I would say our relationships with ourselves as well as our relationships with one another, right? And our systems don't invest adequately in building really authentic, healthy relationships. And so we have to be super intentional about, as we dismantle those systems, as we build new ones, uh, doing the, spending the time, you know, and actually doing the work, I think, because really strong, healthy relationships aren't easy, especially if we are engaging in such a way that we're authentic about our woundedness and our biases and, you know, really seeking to grow. So taking the time to build those relationships and stop asking the individual to be responsible for fixing and healing everything that a system, a broken system did to them. Like Andrea said, kind of creating conditions that um, allow people to be empowered. People are empowered. We need to get out of their way and let them use their power. Yes. So as we wrap up, we do want to ask our final question of our guests. And that question is, if there was one thing that you would like everyone in the world to start doing right now that would transform our organizations, our systems, our interactions, our relationships, what would you have everyone do? Jesse, I'm so worried we're going to have the same one. (laughs) Then you go first. (laughs) Never mind. I think um, cultivating curiosity, right? Um, you know, yeah. we so often protect ourselves by ostriching, right? Mm-hmm. Putting our heads in the sand, avoiding, distracting, going for quick relief behaviors rather than really checking in about what's happening for us when we do get uncomfortable. And of course, that's a trauma response so often, right? It can be jarring to have our sense of knowing or being or thinking or doing challenged or to notice that there's a discrepancy maybe in our deeply held beliefs and the world as it changes around us. And so it's, you know, a healthy sense of curiosity that I think helps us befriend that discomfort without judgment and accept it for what it is and understand it as you said earlier, important information, right? That empowers us to notice the space between a stimulus and a response. So we can be intentional about the choices that we make. I just, I think it's a critical skill and a great strength in this work. And I think just in this world to be in touch with our curious side. And so that's what I would say. I hope I didn't steal yours, Jesse. I love that. I just want to say really quickly, I just had a conversation with some, actually two conversations in the last three days. And I love that this keeps coming up. I'm going to pay attention to it. And the conversation was really around, like, we don't always have to have the answer, but so many times we get asked a question and we feel like we have to have the answer, but we don't always have to have an answer. In fact, most of the time, it's just as helpful 
to have the next question mm. and to continue to be curious. And so I, I love that you, I love that you said that. Whitney, Jesse, how uh, about not, you? not stealing, just sharing. Um, so, <laughs> so with an additional one, I'll just put my C-tip hat on really quickly and just say, I, I hope that folks get involved at whatever yeah. level they uh, feel comfortable, right? Yes. The advocacy and action that's so necessary. You can go to ctip.org. We have a tremendous amount of resources a great one if you're interested in advocacy is Whitney put together a nine-part asynchronous advocacy series with engagement tools that mm. folks can do on their own. It's four hours total to sort of nurture and educate about the advocacy process, um, what trauma-informed advocacy is, not just in terms of the policies that we're trying to promote, but also how we take care of ourselves, how we're compassionate toward those that we advocate toward. We're and towards to those we advocate against, can we be compassionate to them well, too? Because that's harder yeah, for we've me. Got to, right? <laughs> you got yeah. tools and tips for me? Okay, good. <laughs> Check out the advocacy series. We'll Excellent. keep adding more. It's an important conversation. Um, but yeah, as we build this movement, we need everyone um, to get involved. And as we move across the bell curve of society toward transformation, Everybody who currently believes in this, their action and activity is so critical. Mm. And so I agree with what Whitney said, but that's my one extra thing. Thank you. That's great. Well, Whitney and Jesse, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Such a joy. And hopefully we'll have more opportunities to connect in the future. We'd look forward to that. And for our listeners, we invite you to check out the previous episodes of our podcast. You can find that information and more at the MidAmerica ATTC website. There you can also find a link to our virtual room of refuge where you can find a variety of support for your own well-being, access to our YouTube channel, and you can subscribe to our newsletter, Conscious Connections. Thanks for joining us. It is our hope that where you work and where you live, This podcast will offer you practical support for the practice of trauma-informed caring. 